Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast, maybe on planet Earth at this point. Hope everyone's well. Good to see you. Great to be back. I'm very excited about this week's guest. It was a fascinating conversation and a bit of a different look at how teams create success. Uh, so I think there'll be something in this for anyone, whether you're interested in business, sport, military, maybe not military. I don't know. That might be a stretch. But basically, anyone that's interested in building high-performing teams, this is a podcast you should listen to. So let's just get straight into it. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the people that run Caffeine Gum Australia. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out the link in the bio and buy some caffeine gum. Okay, that's all the marketing today. This week's guest is fantastic. So we had the opportunity to sit down with Simon Strawn. Simon is a co-founder of Gainline Analytics, a company he formed with former Wallabies prop Ben Darwin. Gainline is an operations and management consultancy with a unique perspective on success in professional sport and business. Their work has shown that great teams are more than just the sum of their parts and that great teams are the product of linkages and connections within the organization. Through their work, they help sporting clubs, organizations and business build these linkages and connections with a view to building sustainable and long-term success. Gameline places a strong focus on data analysis and quantitative research using the unique field of cohesion analytics. There you go, got all that out. This podcast is a fascinating look at how some of the most successful teams in the world build these connections from the ground up. So there's a little bit in this for everyone. Uh, I hope I did a good job of, of asking Simon the questions. I think I did. I certainly had a stronger understanding of cohesion and the work that they do. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mr. Simon Strawn. All right, we're live. Firstly, Simon, thank you very much for doing this, mate. I've had your company come up numerous times over the course of doing this podcast. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity to, to get you on. And I'm very grateful that you agreed to come on. Maybe for some of our audience who are not as familiar with yourself, would you be able to give a brief rundown of your career prior to starting Gainline? Yes. Uh, thanks, Duncan. Well, thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, so I've got a very uh, sort of non-traditional background in a way. So um, um, before I was doing what I was doing, even though I've always been involved in rugby in a certain way as a player and a coach, um, I um, went to uni, did a, a few years of computer science, but ended up being a product designer. So I was a car designer for a whole bunch of years. So I worked for Holden oh, right. um, for a while. And I actually got out of car design um, because I could sort of see the, the writing on the wall for the car industry in Australia. Um, I ended up being a, a school teacher for a period of time. I ran a rugby program in, in a school here in Melbourne. So we're based here in Melbourne. Um, and... Um, and that sort of goes along with my uh, uh, the fact that I'm a basically a rugby tragic, like a lot of people um, around. So I had an opportunity to change profession. Um, I had the idea of becoming a school teacher because um, it, it sort of worked with some of my skills and my interpersonal skills, but an opportunity came up to run rugby in, in a school. But then actually that gave me a little bit more time to um, 
to look at other aspects of what I was doing. And, and in conjunction with that, I was actually um, through rugby coaching. So I was involved in Pathways um, here in Melbourne. And so I had the opportunity to just through coaching, end up coaching the Vic School Boys and also then um, the Junior Gold Cup. So that was an old program, an old rep program. And, and to reasonable success uh, over a period of time. So some of the, the guys that have come through that program have actually gone on to play for the Wallabies. Um, so it's, it was a really good experience for me um, for, for that time. But then through that experience, through involved in uh, sort of the v Victorian rugby circles, I ended up um, um, working with the Wallabies as a performance analyst. And that was through circumstance and, and happenstance that that happened. But then once you're in that in that circle of that, that sort of that circle ended up then through meeting Ben, Ben Darwin through that relationship. Then Ben said, well, if you can do this for the Wallabies, maybe you can help me out with the Melbourne Rebels. And so that was around 2010 when Ben just came on board at the Rebels. And so then I was um, working with him for a period of time. Ben moved on, went to Japan to coach for a little bit. Um, sort of, I stayed on board. So, it enabled me to um, really sort of throw myself in in that sort of professional sports side and professional rugby. So I had sort of many talents, sort of apprentice at many, master at none. But then after being involved from a coaching perspective, from an analyst perspective as a performance analyst, it sort of gave me some ideas about what worked and what didn't. And then when Ben came back from Japan, um, I mean, he tells this story. He had a 100% he winning season with Suntory in Japan, but still got fired and said, you know, this idea of coaching is a, is a ridiculous thing to be involved in, but I've got this idea. Let me explain it to you. And it resonated with me in my coaching and my experience. And that was the one thing that then led to um, us forming Gainline Analytics. So I'm, I'm very interested in business as well as coaching and, and rugby and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell me, so Ben's come to you with this idea. How did it, become what it's become <laughs> yes uh, so um the original concept was a database of every professional rugby league rugby union player so i've got this uh, he started creating a database where the idea was rugby clubs rugby league clubs would come to us and say mm -hmm. uh we need a flanker can you give us a list of all the flankers coming off contract so with this database of players their contract history, the clubs they were playing for, their previous clubs, who their agent was in that way. So, but when we arranged the database in a certain way, um, we noticed that clubs that were um, sourcing players or aiming to get high talent players versus clubs that were restricted from getting talent were not necessarily getting the performance outcomes that expected. So clubs that went and bought big weren't getting the performance boost expected. Clubs that for some reason, whether they were going bust or they ran out of money and couldn't buy players, were actually getting a performance increase. And of course, this went against all logic or all normal thought when it comes to performance is driven by skill. Um, and this was sort of a bit of an aha moment that that sort of sat with Ben and his own experience of playing through the Brumbies and playing in the Wallabies where as, a, as an individual, he didn't think he was necessarily better than a New Zealand prop or a New Zealand rugby player. But as a team, the Brumbies and then the Wallabies during that golden era of Australian rugby could beat the All Blacks over that period of time. So, um, so that was that sort of time when we sort of 
I think we've got something here that teams can use, but understanding we've got something, but then actually applying it into a sporting environment is an, another thing altogether. So having an idea and turning it into a business are two completely different things. Yeah. And I'm sure that talking about that could probably take many, many hours and <laughs> yes. maybe for some other time. Yeah. Something that Ben, obviously Ben's quite well known in the rugby community. Something that he mentions quite frequently and, and you guys talk about is the, the concept of cohesion. Yeah. So when, when you looked, when you looked at these trends from, from what you found, can you, can you talk about how you get to this cohesion and the TWI index that you guys also talk about? Yeah. So when we talk about cohesion or the word cohesion, it's around the objective level of understanding that teammates have on the field with each other. So um, cohesion, it's not as in social cohesion where the people like each other. It's not a cultural thing. It is more this objective understanding when someone does a certain thing on the field that their, their teammate knows what they're going to do and how they're going to do it in that way. So our measurements, TWI is an example, and the game-by-game -game markers that we've produced. So in a game of rugby league or a game of rugby union, we have literally thousands of different measurements that, that measure what we call cohesion. Now, whether they are truly you know, they are effectively a proxy for understanding whether you can truly measure understanding. I'm not 100% sure, but our markers have a very, very strong relationship to performance. So they're pretty good at, 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 at effectively measuring understanding. So, so what we found was when we first started and we found that had this aha moment where, wait a minute, teams that went by all this talent don't perform, but teams that are restricted buying talent do actually get this after lifted performance. What is the factor that's involved in that? And then from that, that's where we were able to say, okay, we, we understand how they contract. We understand the, the contract length of their players, et cetera. How can we then turn that into a number? So when we first started GameLine, there was Ben, myself, and a third um, guy, Pat Ferguson. So Pat was doing economics at Melbourne University and he was the numbers guy. So. Um, so Ben and I obviously had this sort of on-field sort of sports experience, but Ben was the numbers guy. Uh, sorry, Pat was the numbers guy. So Pat um, went on to do a PhD at Harvard, so he was a pretty cluey fellow. So he was able to sort of um, articulate it in a, in a numbers perspective, and that's how we developed TWI or Teamwork Index. And effectively, it's a way of measuring how an organisation puts their squad together and in the simplest way, are they a build or are they a buy organisation? Does the organisation go out and buy existing talent or they, do they develop it from within? And that's what T, the TWI marker, Teamwork Index, effectively measure. So that's a measure of how an organisation puts their, their squad together. And it's, it's almost like a proxy for their philosophy um, in a way. And it's a really, really good indicator of, whether a club's going to be successful in the short and long term. High TWI teams are the teams that are most successful and they're the most successful over the long term. Low TWI teams are not successful. They can be, but there might be very a short-term success and they quickly drop back over time. And TWI is, is a reflection. It's not a reflection of the coach. 
It's not a reflection of the players. It's ultimately a reflection of the organisation, the governance of it. So it's a reflection of the owner. It's a reflection of the board. It's a reflection of the CEO in that way. So one one of the things I wanted to ask you specifically about is the the team systems part of the TWI. So you've got a couple of things that you take into account. But when you say team systems, what what does that mean? Is Is that as simple as your attack system, your line-out system, and then having people easily able to transition into that system? Or is it is it far broader than that? Yeah, it's far, it is far broader. So sort of taking you back from looking at the team. So when we do talk about TWI and talk about recruitment, um, how an organisation recruits, TWI is a reflection of, this, in a way, the system or the structure a team sits above. Say Penrith Panthers at the moment, I mean, they're a great example of a of an organisation that sits above a very aligned system. You get their players coming through their juniors into their reserves, into their first grade. And yeah. so they can, and this is the great thing about the, the, the grand final, the NRL grand final on the weekend, is that they can still make changes in their team and it doesn't necessarily influence them or impact them significantly. <laughs> where Parama, uh, Parramatta, for example, like they had really strong numbers, cohesion markers coming into the grand final, but in the last few weeks, they had to make some changes and they were really fragile because of that, because their system or their structure underneath doesn't allow them to do it. Yeah. And so, so, we, so part of the function of TWI is a reflection of the system or the structure or the development pathways that a team sits on. And so, so when we talk about cohesion, we talk about the three Ps, people, position and program. So it's, it's the relationship between the understanding between people, the understanding of the relationship to position. So you get someone, say, in rugby playing at inside centre at 12. If they move to 13, not only do they have to then consider what the, the, the change of position entails because it's a different defensive role at 13 than it is at 12, but you're also defending now with different people around you. There's a different person inside you, a different person outside you, so that has a relationship to cohesion. And then there's the program element. The program element is, for example, game plan. If you have a new coach changing the way you're playing, then that is part of the understanding. And so there's normally, if you change the game plan, there is a period of adaption over it. So we did a study in the NRL a couple of seasons ago and that when a experienced coach in their first year tended to get a greater level of underperformance than an inexperienced coach, and, and basically what we're seeing is there an experience comes in and changes a lot more because they've got a lot more knowledge and they, and they believe they know how or the, what they want to do. Yeah. And so the players have to adapt over that period of time. So all of these different things go into the whole cohesion pot, um, so to speak. What I find really interesting about, about this is obviously – uh, with few exceptions, obviously, if you're starting a new team, you have the ability to build cohesive systems and programs and people from the ground up. But if you go into an existing organization, I'm not wording this question well, but one of the one of the the main things with high performance sport is that people want results now. Yes. And, yeah. and to get long term success from from the work that you guys have done and from what I've witness it takes a while to build these systems build these processes and actually get your team to a level of cohesion where you can be successful 
is it a long-term process or are there any considerations that organizations and clubs and coaches need to make without giving everything away? There are there are absolutely things you can do to speed up, mitigate, change the level of cohesion outside of the long-term burn, so to speak, yeah. um, in what you're doing. So um, there's a process of back-ending is what we call. So if you're really, really super stable in the season, you can get really good numbers by the end of the season. So when the Sharks won uh, the grand final in 2016, when Cronulla won, that was basically that was their competitive advantage. They were really stable during the season. Yeah. However, it's not sustainable. Like you cannot you cannot use that as a, a practice year on year because ultimately you really can't control your stability because of the factor of injuries and things. So when Leicester City won the, the, the English Premier League in 15-16, um, 14-15, can't remember now, that was stability was their thing. One guy just needed to slip over in the change room and they were gone for that particular season. Yeah. But it's not sustainable. They nearly got relegated two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the next season. They were sort of in the rele- in the relegation area because they couldn't sustain that because they weren't built for that kind of success. Yeah. And so there are things you can do in season. The number one thing about cohesion is recognising where you are at with it and understanding that and then mitigating for it. And so um, being in, a, in, in an organisation or a team that's relatively low cohesion, you can't expect to be able to play at a high level with low cohesion because yeah. the, the team just doesn't have the capacity. So being able to understand that, you can't expect to be able to defend well in a low cohesion team because the team just doesn't have the capacity to do it in that way. So recognising it and then the whole organisation recognising it. And the one thing that we see, and we see it a lot in English football, the majority of sackings of managers is around this misconception of what the driver of performance is because yeah. it's very much skill-driven. The, the, the idea of performance is very much skill-driven in English football because it's about how much you pay your players in that way. So, yeah. so understanding that for an organisation to be successful or an organisation to develop is actually having that understanding of where they are from that perspective. So I had a really good experience earlier in the year. So Manchester United were in, were in Australia and I did a, a mini workshop with them explaining to them what the dynamic of what it was like under Ferguson and where their numbers were and, and what they were like during their, their multiple manager changes over the period of time. And you can see the pressure that now sits on them, on the current manager and their coaches compared to the pressure that was under, say, Ferguson. Ferguson would never, never last in the current climate in, in professional football because it just wouldn't be given the time. So there's a whole different dynamic around how you drive performance. But having the organisation understand it is probably the number one thing, and then that ultimately flows down to what you do and how you react on the field. Are there any, for people that want to achieve long-term success, so you, you mentioned Manchester United, obviously one of the great examples. Then you'd look at the Canterbury Crusaders. They've got to be up there as well. And more recently, Penrith. What are some general considerations that organizations need to make 
or it or to invest in so that they can get that long-term success? Yeah, it's ultimately structure, what the structure of your organization looks like. Um, you, so it, it's almost like your national, um, it's almost, it's the same for a national team, what the structure looks like underneath. So you cannot, as a team, you can't control your destiny by your by ultimately how you recruit um, existing players. You've basically got to be able to generate a system that produces players into your system. So when your senior players drop off, you already have your junior players coming through, which is what the Crusaders yeah. does, which is what the Melbourne Storm, how the Melbourne Restorm um, replaced um, Smith, Cronk and Slater. They basically have a system in place that allows them to come in because they trust the process. Once you've got that system in place, you've, there's this level of trust that you know you've been through the process so you don't have to second-guess yourself. And one of the things that these, these organisations have is institutional memory. Because people have been there for a reasonable period of time, that they know that they trusted the system before. They know that they can produce the talent. And what I mean by producing the talent, they can get players to play to capacity. They don't actually have to recruit the best talent, but being a high cohesive environment, the players are allowed to play to capacity. Yeah. So that's the number one thing. So you can, so NRL grand final on the weekend, you can produce a system like the Eels that you can aim to have your one best shot in a way, but it's very, it's everything has to go right. And it didn't end up going right for them. They, they end up having some high weaknesses that the Panthers exploited um, in the end. Um, but that was it. And we know, and it's, it, it's every, you know, it's pretty well known that you know, they're losing a lot of players, the Eels. And so potentially this was their year. If they didn't make it this year, it, you know, it might be another uh, a few years before they, they have a chance again. However, Penrith is just, let's come back again. Let's come back again. Let's come back again because they're just going to backfill because they you know their juniors and their reserves, they've just got the capacity to produce, um, um, produce talent, produce performance because of the nature of the way they've put it together. So, so to to simplify things in my in my brain when we just say the penrith for example they've they've got this first grade squad they have a financial model that can sustain the talent that they have there's the junior system is all aligned with the first grade squad they've got all the same systems so once a guy plays first grade for penrith they could have had a, a huge amount of cohesion with the guys coming through because one they were playing juniors with them they transitioned through the age groups at Penrith. Plus, they're familiar with the systems in place because it's aligned the whole way through the club. They've got an attachment to the club. So there's that cohesion or shared experience. Plus, the coaching is all aligned and and that further increases the cohesion yeah. element. Yeah. Is, is that am I am I looking at that the right yeah. way? Yeah. One thing you, you did say in there about I think uh, I'll paraphrase you here. They've got they, they've got the the money or whatever it was to retain the talent. So the thing about that is, if the system's in place, you're always renewing with your junior talent, which means you're not paying overs. You're not paying overs for that talent. Yeah. So eventually, 
you, because your team becomes successful, your first grade team will be highly valued. Now, that was the issue, you know, that's the issue the storm went through years ago. Their cohesion success, ultimately the market valued their players that are certain they tried to hold on to them. Yeah. So Penrith will come up to this and they'll have to basically get rid of players because of the market will value them very highly. However, if your system is sustainable, you are backfilling with your, your juniors and so you're not having to pay overs um, in that way. So it's, it's almost sustainable. So I'll give you an example. So when um, Manly, Manly had some successful years in the, in the 2000s, and the group said, you know, we, we want to take pay cuts so we just stay together at a group. But then you have a young guy like DCE come into the system and says, I'm, you know, I'm a superstar. Well, sorry, I'm pretty good. I'm worth X. And the, and the guys that have been there for a long period of time who were willing to take pay cuts well said, well, I'm not willing to take a pay cut anymore. And it's almost as if then that external talent then destroyed sort of the cost base, so to speak. So with this system, it just makes this sustainable system where you're not actually having to pay overs to to maintain this level of performance. Because, well, you look at teams like the Melbourne Storm, and it seems like they'll they'll lose a bunch of superstars, and then the next lot will just transition in. And because they've had the system in place, it's yeah. almost seamless. Yeah, yeah, and it's like the Crusaders. You know, you 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 have those. You have a lot of those guys. I, you know what? We work. We've done work with the Crusaders. And I probably couldn't even name their back row because, because um, they they do their job and they do their job really well. They're not standout stars. And yeah. because of that, they don't they don't have to go and pay the big bucks. So you don't have to be like Auckland that have gone out and paid. Uh, and I don't know this for sure. I don't know this. But yeah. they've gone and they've got some young guys. Like they've got the, there's this believe it or not, a young German guy that was in the Tasman system that's, a, that, that's an out-and-out all-star athlete um, and brought him up to Auckland. But you're almost having to pay overs to bring them into your system where yeah. you just, if you've got this really sustainable system, you just get these guys flowing through. Um, does, it apply to coach, does it apply to coaching as well? Because like if you look at the Crusaders, they've just lost Jason Ryan and... Goodman, I think his name is, and then they've transitioned the Tasman coaches in. So it almost seems like Tasman's a bit of a feeder club to the Crusaders. So they'd have that coaching cohesion still potentially. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, it, it definitely it um, applies to coaching because that's, that's that program element of what yeah. we talk about because they will know. So with with the Crusaders, Canterbury and Tasman sit below as their NPC feeders. Yeah. And so there will be some level of alignment because there would be communication. And so, A, there's alignment through program, but then alignment through player. So those guys will know the player. And so, you, so there's, you, you're not missing out on the communication um, issue coming through. So that's when they're very internally aligned organisations. And, and often people will talk about the cultural element associated with it, but ultimately... Having that level of understanding is is probably well from our perspective is that number one driver because you don't have to come in and create a new language you don't have to come in and change the way to communicate because you're always you're all, almost halfway there. Is there an optimal amount to for for cohesion to be optimal? Is there an optimal amount of feeder clubs that you would you would have? Um, 
So like, look at, look at the Wallabies, for example, and I, you have a great video on your website. I I can't remember what it's called specifically, specifically, but it's said that the cohesions change from when it was Queensland, New South Wales to now having multiple teams. Yeah. So so that video is an excerpt from a rugby documentary that that we helped um, create some data points with. So the doco is called Gold Digger Search for Australian Rugby. Yeah. So just giving it a plug, it's on Fox Docos and Binge if anybody wants to watch it. But um, so, but so there is like the smaller your feeders, the better it is. But that's not to say it's not to say you can't work with what you've got. So, for example, with Australian rugby, um, Australian rugby was really optimal with. Um, you know, New South Wales, Queensland, then into the Brumbies, and then it struggled with expansion. And now we've, you know, we've got five Super Rugby teams, and it will be five Super Rugby teams. Um, but there's ways around you can make it work. The reason why Australia's struggled, and say New New Zealand hadn't struggled with five Super Rugby teams, because their five Super Rugby teams have always been had always been high TWI, so they're highly stable. So when you're picking from highly stable teams. Players are playing at capacity, plus the All Blacks really only chose from, say, two and a half teams. So they're only picking from a small amount of teams anyway. So whether it was the Crusaders, Hurricanes, and a bit of somebody else, or Crusaders, Hurricanes, a bit of the Blues. Um, so they've moved away from that model um, in the last few years, which is which is partly uh, uh, influencing the All Blacks, plus the stability of the New Zealand teams is also struggling a little bit as well with the inclusion of Manawa Pacifica, which is also adding to the woes of the All Blacks, as much to um, the delight of everyone else, of course. But um, so there are ways to work with your feeders. The more feeders you have, the harder it is. England rugby, for example, like the England national team picking from 12 teams, 13 teams, makes it really, really hard. So everything has to be right, um, right for them. So the tighter it is, the better. But ultimately, if you understand the mechanism, you can work with the mechanism. So, so some practical elements of this for, you know, us coaches who are, you know, simple people at heart, I think is it, is it maybe not simple, but you know, probably not as data driven. If you, if you have a guy, so just say you, you 10, 10 is a key position in rugby, nine, 10. Say you, you have a guy you think might be the guy eventually versus you have an experienced guy who might get you some short-term success now but the optimal thing to do would be to pick the young guy and build him over time so that he has that, um, that cohesion within the team, within the systems, and then potentially you will get the results down the track. Is, would that be the more um, prudent way to go about it? Yes. In a way, it's not about the guy. It's about the group of people. It's about the combinations of it. But, but, if, but if you've got a 10, sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. you there, but if you've got a 10, they're going to have, by the time long-term, by the time you're going to be successful, might be two years, might be three, yeah. might be slightly yeah. more than that. They've actually built all that experience with the existing group yeah. versus picking in a, a guy who's at the end of their career who might last a year or two more yeah. to get that, optimal cohesion so that you get the long-term success is it yeah. better to sit to get that guy who will be there eventually yeah and give them the experience now 
Yes, it is. The only caveat to that is you've still got to put that young guy into a stable environment. If you don't do that, you will have the Mac Mason into the Waratahs a couple of seasons ago experience where he would just be out of sorts because of the environment you've thrown him into. So when you say stable environment, sorry, sorry again, stable coaching, stable players, stable system, stable program, and the opportunity to make mistakes and learn and to continue to progress. So, so, Stability comes in different forms. So we took, again, the three Ps, people, position, program. If you're changing all those, if you change one of them then and the other two are stable, at least you know what the variable is. If you change all three of them, if you're changing all the people, if you're changing, the, if you're changing players, if you're changing positions, if you're changing the program with a new coach, you don't know what's not working. And so that's where the stability side's really important. So either if you're changing the coach, um, then, okay, let's let's try and maintain the other two. If we're changing the people, let's try and maintain the other two. If we're, if we're moving people in position, let's let's try and change the other two because initially you need that sense of stability to understand what's working and what's not from that perspective. However, if they all do change, then you know it's just going to be chaos and you've got to work through the chaos initially. And then things you can do in season, okay, well, let's try and maintain our stability early in the season to develop those relationships um, to start with, and it may look terrible, and it's not the player's fault, it's not the coach's fault, it's just the nature of the chaos that we have, and then we just have to work through it from that perspective. This all seems very logical, the way you're presenting it. Yeah. How has the uptake been within the sporting community? So, so our initial clients were two sorts. The team that was so bad that they ran out of other things okay we are now we are so bad okay all right well maybe we can try this or the team that was at the absolute top of their game we want to understand why we're here and potential signals of failure coming up Um, and so initially that was sort of where we started working with um, we have a thing called the game line curse. If a coach, if a coach calls us to say, "Can you come in and help me?" because we're not going too well, they're probably going to get fired. They get fired in the next month. Um, so, one of the biggest things about what we do is that often our, because we are a data-driven business, often our data shows that success or failure is not necessarily the function of an individual, but more a function of circumstance, more a function of the process, more a function of the system in place. So in some cases, it doesn't necessarily put people in a necessarily a good light or or shown a different light on people's reputation. So there is a lot of self-interest involved in that, where we try and be objective as possible. We're not finger pointing, this is the circumstance. behind it and because um professional sport is very um ego driven and it is it is often driven by the you know the cult of personality and the and the cult of skill it has been a sort of difficult for us to be able to um get cut through but but we are generating that cut through now and this is why for us we position ourselves as a governance a governance business it's around the the governance of the sporting body, which then flows down to what happens on field. 
our focus is not to work with on field and then up. Our focus is to work with the owner board of a sporting organisation, then down to um, the field. Because ultimately, the way we look at it from a cohesion analytics perspective, a missed tackle on the field is more of a function of decisions made from a governance perspective two or three or four years earlier in the organisation. So the TWI, how you measure the squad, how it's put together, drives the actual game-by-game numbers that happens on the field on that day. So a decision made in the organisation two or three years ago, which drives TWI, will ultimately then drive a set of numbers that happens in a game. And those those cohesion factors, it may look like a person is poor in defence, but it's potentially a cohesion weakness because he's never played with that person inside them um, in that way. And that's a function of decisions made in the organisation in that way. I'm I'm trying to think of the right way to word this question. Some some organisations get it right. Not many. Not many get it right. If you're a brand new club, what are the key considerations, just being general, of course, that you would make when starting a new club with the opportunity to get this right from the start? Is it a matter of getting those systems in place straight away? Yeah, that's a really good question. Ultimately, it's about um, what what do you want to achieve and when do you want to achieve it? Um, I think one of the ultimate comes back to that governance question. The reason being, for example, let's say, let's look at the Dolphins in the NRL. So they could start with uh, developing their system, developing their pathways, developing their juniors and sort of, you know, go maybe go back seven years to where the Panthers were and say in seven years, potentially, we'll have a premiership winning system seven to ten years well of a premiership winning system similar to what Penrith has now the question for the organization is are we going to be willing to be absolutely flogged with a bunch of young kids for the first three or four years over that period of time can we take it as an organization or do we want to get some hits do we want to get some wins on the road first as an organisation, take a dip for a period of time and then come back when our juniors come through. So there are, there are basically different ways to skin the cat with it. Mm-hmm. And um, so because each, how you set up your organisation will have a different outcome to what happens on the field. Setting up an existing team will have a different outcome, setting uh sort of going for that those first early wins will have a different outcome in the long term than setting up a, 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 a um, uh, sort of a long-term um, system. So Melbourne Storm, really good example of, um, of a team set up in 98, a bunch of players from other NRL teams, amazingly stable, amazingly stable organisation. In fact, by some of our markers, they achieved some defensive markers in their first season that um, the New Zealand Warriors have never achieved in their entire existence. Um, So they just enabled themselves to be competitive really quick, which carried on to 99. 
um, because that sort of, and whether it was through conscious competence or uh, unconscious competence, not really sure. Um, but but what happened was they got these early wins, they dropped off, but then they came back. Yeah. And so it depends on what the organisation wants to achieve and when they want to achieve it. I guess it'd be contextual as well. So if you if you're starting a new franchise to get the fan base on side, you really need to get a few wins pretty early so people start to get excited about you and then you could gradually filter your local juniors through the system well that's right and, but you say that and then you say that and then you got the titans that did exactly that uh started in 2007 got some decent wins in 2010 2011 i think i've got those dates right but then wilderness after that they did it early and then wilderness for a long period of time. And that's where potentially the dolphins are going to be in a similar situation if they don't get that pathway right. It's it's a fascinating subject. I, I won't take up too much of your time. We're almost at the end of our time. Is there any is there any part of the work that you do that you wish more people understood in regards to TWI cohesion and actually building a team? Um yeah, I, I, that's a really good question. I think, I think, I think the broader picture is around um, cohesion is just not about holding a team together. It's it's the broader part. It is around cohesion of a team is really around. Yes, it's about people playing together, but ultimately it's about the, the structure, how the players come through and come into that team. It's about. Um, how the, the the program element um so it's those different factors those three p's i talked about people position program come into it um it's those different elements that come together that are actually controllable so when people say oh, oh yeah i know about that cohesion thing i'm just gonna you know we're just gonna be really stable and just in the season i think we've got that when there's so much more layers to it so i mean we're in a Often for us as a as a business to be able to explain cohesion fully so someone understands that we're almost giving away our IP at the same time. So we yeah. sort of run this um, sort of tightrope of how much we give away so people actually truly understand it. So, but you know, as we go, our reputation builds, and so um, you know, we don't have to do that as much um, um, as we're talking to more and more people and more and more organisations. So. No, I've, I certainly have a far better understanding of, of cohesion and TWI than I did at the start of this conversation. And I have been someone that's not deeply paying attention, but more from an external point of view, watching the work that you guys have been doing. What, what, what kind of services do you offer? Do you only work with sporting teams and professional teams? Do you work with businesses and, and in the corporate world as well, if people are interested in, in engaging your services? Yeah, so... Yeah, so ultimately we measure teams and we measure teams against KPIs. Sports, KPIs are relatively straightforward. So that means we ultimately we work in any 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 form of any form that has teams. So we work in corporate as well. Yeah. We've got a number of um, corporate clients. Um, and um, so we've got essentially a number of different um, areas of our business, sport being one. Ultimately for us, a sort of elite professional sport is the area where we are strongest because of the level of data that's available that we use because we're heavily data driven for that however as you go down the levels of of sport the practice the 
practices and principles of what we do are still applicable. So, for example, um, you know, we, we, we do work with international teams, work with um, um, in the NRL, Super Rugby, but also NPC, um, you know, done some stuff in Shoot Shield as well. So we can still apply what we do into that area. It's just um, different levels of, of how much the application is. And then in the, the corporate side as well. So the corporate side is around um, workshops we do around those practicals and principles, but also actually working in businesses to actually measure them, measure them around um, how are they working, what's their level of cohesion, working that against KPIs, their internal and external KPIs as well. So they have a better understanding about what, um, um, how cohesion influences their um, internal recruiting and, and those strategies internally as well. We've got some other aspects of our business as well. Um, we're looking at um, some funds management areas of our business, understanding how cohesion influences um, um, business in relation to share price and other those aspects as well. So, so it's there's very a broad, big, broad spectrum of what we're doing um, in relation to cohesion analytics. So, if, if people want to reach out to you guys to to engage your services, is it best to go through the website? Yeah. So, yeah, biz on there. So there's contact details, but there's also a little inquiry um, inquiry box that people can write to us, and then check us out on Twitter at at GL Analytics, and we'll have a link. We've got a LinkedIn page and Facebook, but um, reach out via that um, the website. My my numbers on there, and also um, by that inquiry box. Um, I'll make sure I well. put it with all the, the the socials for this. I just had one more question for you. Yeah, and this is something I'm something I'm personally interested in. Has your has your view changed from when you first started the business to now? Has there any is there anything that you've changed your mind on as you've discovered more as the data's evolved <laughs> as you've looked deeper at the subject? Yeah, uh, I t- well look. It's really interesting. So when we when we first started, especially working the NRL, when we had we started with TWI and using TWI, one of the things we do when we work with clients is that we predict outcome. We predict outcome of games because it gives them context to performance. The part of the process is we don't do what we do to predict outcome. Predict out, predicting outcome of games is just part of the process because teams want to know if they were going to win or lose, so they don't necessarily make um, reactive decisions based on that. Yeah. When we first started um, with TWI, we're probably around 65%. In the NRL, we're, we're predicting around 78, 80% of games now just with the cohesion analytics numbers. So not with, not with we don't use any um, skill data. We don't use any, there's no form um, included in those, in those predictions. So what it's actually showing or proving is that that level of understanding or the influence of cohesion is probably far greater than what we originally thought it was at the beginning of this process. Even now in the Premier League in the UK, where we know the disparity between the highest paid and the lowest paid teams in the Premier League is immense, still the level of cohesion between teams is the relationship between cohesion and performance is is pretty strong. So it doesn't matter how much you're paying, you still have to be cohesive to be to have a level of performance. Have there, are that. there? There's obviously exceptions, but it, I can imagine yeah. that it's more common than it is uncommon. 
yeah, the, the, mo- the, mo- the, most, the most exception we have is when teams underperform against the markets. Rarely do we have a team that's a low cohesion team performing strongly. It's normally a high cohesion team for some reason that's not performing um, to its market. So an example of that is Adelaide Pros in 2018. Um, and then what comes out um, post their, their pre-season camp. So there's these things that we find where we red flag teams and then some t- majority of the times we actually find out a reason why they weren't necessarily performing to their markers in that way. So, so regardless of who the coach is, regardless of who the players are, teams have a capacity and that capacity seems to be their cohesion markers. And in the majority of the competitions, whether it's the Rugby World Cup, whether it's the NRL or Super Rugby, there's a, there's a level that teams need to be to be competitive and to, to make the grand final and to be competitive with grand finals. So you can almost predict the, the finals before the start of the season, theoretically. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one thing we do. Now, what we, can, what we can do is say this is the level that teams need to be to be competitive with the grand final based on this is where we've been and this is the trend in the NRL. Now, everyone may have a ball terror for season and end up being above that. So that's what we do when we work with clients. We, you know, we basically track them over the course of the season. This is where you're heading to give them an indication of whether or not they're being competitive or not. Um, over that period of time. So to give them some context around their performance. So, for example, okay, you've done everything right with your recruiting. Your TWI has gone up, but everybody else has actually done better than you. So it actually may look like you've gone backwards. Yeah. So it's around that context is probably one of the most important things that organisations need to understand. So they don't then make, they don't have what we call action bias. They don't make rash decisions based on um, performance when it's out of their control if everyone else does everything better that's not there's nothing to do with you in that way so that seems like a cycle that reaction cycle that could go on for decades and you've seen i'm sure everyone we don't have to name names but there are sporting teams all over the world that seem to just repeat that cycle yeah thank you very much for this mate yeah yeah look no it's my pleasure it's um it's always good to talk because it's good to self-reflect um on on what we're doing and how we're doing it no i matter really appreciate it I, I have a far broader understanding now than i did at the start i i don't understand why everyone isn't paying attention to the work you're doing <laughs> and hopefully with my yeah. small audience it'll just get out there a little bit more yeah my, my closing remarks are uh gainline analytics is not advocating for three super rugby teams so I just want to put that out there. Um, two, two teams. No, no, no. We're, no, it's <laughs> it's five. We know it's five. We can work with five. We we're already working. You know, we're working with we're working with three of the Super Rugby teams, and we're all we're absolutely. Um, we know the mechanism. We can make the mechanism work. So um, that that's one thing that I think this whole cohesion, especially around Australian rugby, conversation is. Um, because, you know, we as an organisation identified that Australian rugby was performing quite well under three. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're advocating for three super rugby teams, um, but we know we've got five and that's what, the way it's going. And so, so um, by understanding the mechanism, um, we can make the mechanism work. I love it. Next World Cup, we're, we're in. 
depends depends who we're working for. Actually, I don't, I don't want to know the answer. I, I don't want to know how we're going to go at the, the next World Cup. I'd rather be surprised. Hey, um, Simon, thank you very much, mate. No worries. All right, guys. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, can you do a couple of things for me? Can you please follow us on social media? That would be great. Can you also please make sure you subscribe, like, share, comment, all that sort of stuff helps boost the algorithm so more people can see this podcast. Again, if you would like to support the podcast, please feel free to buy some caffeine gum. Otherwise, I will see you next week. Have a great week. Thank you very much for listening.